This is Michael Bramlage, CEO of Quid, a marketplace of officially licensed digital collectibles from 325 of the world's most beloved brands. It's great to have you listening. Collect some awesome intel on today's session of our beloved Edge of NFT podcast. Hey, all you NFT curious listeners, check out today's episode to learn more about how Quid is taking years of experience that predate NFTs to change the digital collectibles game. And why our guests would rather sell 1 million NFTs for $1 each than one NFT for $1 million. And why not? Let's talk a little bit about Facebook for once. All this and more on today's episode. Welcome to The Edge of NFT with your hosts, Jeff Kelly, Ethan Janney, and Josh Krieger. The podcast that brings you the top 1% of NFTs today and what will stand the test of time. We explore the nuts and bolts and the business side, and also the human element of how NFTs are changing the way we interact with the things we love. This podcast is for the dreamers, disruptors, and doers who are pumped about this ecosystem and driving where it goes next. And today's episode features Michael Bramlage, co-founder and CEO of Quid, the Animoca brands and Sequoia-backed marketplace for buying and selling rare digital collectibles with over 2.1 billion assets issued to date. Formerly VP of Tops Digital and head of product at Nokia, Michael brings a wealth of experience to his leadership of the Quid team and the innovations he has brought and continues to bring to the Quid marketplace. Michael, welcome to Edge of NFT. Thanks, guys, for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, dude. And again, we, we said it before, it was a historic moment. It's the first time all three of us have ever been in the same room together, much less doing a podcast together live and in person from New York City. Well, I hope you can make it to the end of the podcast before killing each other. <laughs> I know, much less the end of the frigging week, but uh, we will see. Yeah. There, there may be a queen bed that we are all sitting on, but for the record, we all have our own <laughs> beds for this crazy week in New York City with two different conferences, all sorts of events. We were talking shop a little bit before. It sounds like we'll probably be at a couple parties together, Michael, over the course of the week. Should be fun. I'm excited. I'll see you there. Definitely, man. And look, so so we connected through our friends at Animoca Brands, such a cool group of folks uh, we had yet on the show we had Robbie on the show. Just love everything that they're about. And uh, so glad that we could connect with you today. And look, there's so much to quid history, like what you have going on now. I mean, it really, it predates the current NFT boom by far. Can you tell us like, where did this all begin and more about the origin story? We're in a space where the origin story actually matters. We're dealing with collectible products that whether it's like high-end artwork, fine wine, or on the low end, trading cards, both physical and digital, tend to get more valuable as time goes on. Weird quirk of a space where kind of old stuff gets more valuable as it gets older and older. So we spent a lot of time talking about our origin story because we do think it makes us a bit unique. And that's a type of uniqueness that is especially important, right, in this sort of collectibles and, and NFT space. So Quid's been around now over five years. We were first to market with our marketplace in 2016. Now, the idea for Quid actually predated Quid itself. I had worked previously at Tops Digital. And as we mentioned on sort of the introductions, around 2012 was when I and, and a team that I worked with at the time started experimenting with digital ownership. This sort of basic notion of, could you take a JPEG? Could you make it verifiably scarce? And could you get people to want to collect, own, and pay real money to have it? 
And what was novel about what we did back then, which is almost a decade ago, but what was novel is these digital objects existed outside the context of a game, right? We've all played games. We've all ultimately spent money on a sword or a sword that's, that sort of has a functional value that helps you level up or even decorative skins to help feel cool within a social context of a game. And that was well established back then. But what we were doing was even more narrowly focused and it was devoid of any sort of broader game context. It was just, hey, you're a fan of this thing. Maybe a way to express your fandom is to own a limited edition JPEG that features the brand that you love. And there wasn't much to do with it besides barter it with somebody else or simply hold it in your digital collection that was accessible from an app on your phone. So we were sort of very early on in this exploration of what I think is ultimately a format shift where collectors are going to shift from buying products made of cardboard to buying products made of code. So we had a bit of success there from about 2012 through 2015, so much so that it sort of created tailwinds for the creation of Quid. We basically said, look, if this is working over here, maybe it'll work over there. (laughs) And maybe over there at Quid, we can do it even bigger and better as a VC-backed startup. So in a lot of ways, we've been in this space about a decade. And with Quid specifically, that play has now been up for at least five or six years. Wow. Yeah. So, so much experience thinking about this space. I'm sure that influenced your your thinking in so many different ways and uh, and how you've evolved over time. Very interesting origin story. NFTs have been part of your line of sight for a long time. We talk about how early use of NFTs was skins in games, right? You were part of that Genesis era, thinking about this even before CryptoKitties. So I guess, how has that sort of impacted your strategy? And in particular, when things got really hot with the market, how did sort of that sort of impact your roadmap and your vision of Quid? It's funny, when we initially raised money way back when for Quid, we used comparisons to the video game market as a way to explain to investors that like, hey, trust us, or at least look at this data, young people that are digitally savvy and digitally native, they spend billions of dollars on these in-game assets. I don't know, 25 billion, 50 billion. We quoted some massive numbers and that certainly got people's attention. One of the outputs of having been in this space for so long is you do build an appreciation for the nuance and the layers that exist, right? And we probably have our three categories of digital objects that that exist now. One is you have like the in-game items, right? And those are probably games that are in traditional video games or free-to-play experiences that aren't on-chain. And actually, they're not individually serialized. They're not scarce. They're rare, right? It's things like legendary, mythic, uncommon, common, right? They all kind of carry that rare, those rarity labels. But those rarity labels don't map exactly to a quantified count of exactly what exists, right? So you've got one category that's sort of in-game virtual assets, but you don't really know how many of them exist and you don't really own them, right? Because ultimately you're at the whim of the game developer to effectively lease them from them. You have this middle category, which we sort of operate in today, which we're calling non-fungible digital collectibles, which are off-chain items that are individually serialized and have a fixed supply. So when we issue items off chain on Quid before they hit the blockchain, they're all individually stamped, individually serialized, and you know and can verify as a collector that only 5,000 of these exist or only 2,000 of these exist. And it's very, very different from the world of gaming. And it kind of has to be because the world of gaming 
Well, they have to run their economy so that if the game explodes and all of a sudden they go from a million users to 100 million users, they can print more items and have enough for them to buy. In our world, it's truly fixed supply. If there's 5,000, there's only over 5,000 that will exist. Then to the right of us, you've got pure play NFTs, right? And I think one of you had asked about what has the boom in the NFT market done for us. I think ultimately it's basically validated the path that we started on years ago, but it sort of took it to another level. And I'll give you sort of an instance of this. For years, Quid existed largely off-chain and largely selling collectibles to fans and collectors that sought out that JPEG because they loved the brand, they loved the character, they wanted the item to complete a set of eight items or 18 items, kind of this notion of, you know, complete them all. They wanted to have prestige within the social context of our app. They basically wanted these objects for years without any notion of economic utility, right? They didn't buy them to then resell them. They didn't buy them because they thought they could sell them for 10X in five years and help pay for rent or pay off their student loans. I think what NFTs uniquely ushered in starting in 2017 and then more recently with the boom is technology that can give the peace of mind of ownership that can then be valued at price points that are real. Hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars. I don't think you can achieve those price points or that you'll cap out if you can't really offer to that collector, to that buyer, what the blockchain offers, right? Which is a sense of permanence, a sense of I own this, and then obviously access to various marketplaces where you could buy and sell for real money. So I think in a lot of ways, what NFTs ultimately injected into the conversation is that economic utility, right? Is that ability to sell to somebody else in a currency that is meaningful to you and that can affect your everyday life. And so I think what's compelling about where we are right now, sort of the state of play, is we are really at a point where if you like art, if you like, in my case, like trading cards, sports trading cards, entertainment trading cards, you really have a tough decision to make. Do I buy cardboard or do I buy code? Because ultimately, the code format has caught up, right? I would say you could put a list of all the things you can do with a physical trading card and put an NFT next to it. And it actually is pretty comparable. It kind of checks all those boxes. And one could actually argue because it's digital only, it's always sort of on chain. You can't really... I mean, technically, you, you can lose access to your wallet, but you, you don't really lose the item itself. It's interoperable and go into various contexts. You can buy and sell it on OpenSea. It's sort of 24-7. You can look at it and touch it without actually degrading the condition of it and then devaluing the object which exists in the real world. I would argue that you put those two things side by side and actually we're at a point now where NFTs as a format wins out. Is that why you ended up doing this sort of real world pre-mint market and aftermarket, where basically, is that your bridge to the mainstream that you guys created? A hundred percent. And it's a bit self-serving to say we had this vision five years ago, right? That we'd have this hybrid solution. In a lot of ways, we've built this thing over half a decade. And we said, look, this is a valuable asset. We've got a community. We've got collectibles in circulation. We've got a whole lot of code to run this off-chain marketplace. Obviously, we don't want to jettison that. But what we've been able to do is find a way to connect it all to the blockchain in a way that's very complementary and also very authentic and organic to how, let's say, trading cards work. I mean, I don't know, you guys probably are young gentlemen, younger than I am, but when I grew up in the 80s um, and I collected baseball cards... 
We're talking about the seven, 1780s here? Yeah, 17, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, I was collecting parchment paper with you know, <laughs> the founding father signatures on them. But when I was collecting physical objects, not everything you own is super valuable. And that's okay, right? It's fine to have a binder of trading cards where 90% of it are just items that you've collected along the way to complete a set or they represent your favorite player, but they're not super valuable. There is a portion of your collection that is the 5% to the 1% that are very valuable. And what do you do with those? That's a great analogy, guys, right? Because, I mean, people talk about these NFTs that go down in value, but when you buy trading cards, you expect that. I have thousands of them, man. Thousands of zero-value cards in my binders, protected, right? You know, just sitting there. And not all of those, I think, in my opinion, would warrant being on-chain. This is where you sort of enter the blockchain and where our application of blockchain technology, I think, matches sort of a usage cycle or a play pattern that you see with physical trading cards, which is for that 5% to that 1%, you're going to treat them differently than you would treat just random cards in a box or in a binder. You're going to, in the parlance of sports trading cards, you're going to authenticate and grade it. So you're going to send it off to another service like PSA to say, this is indeed authentic and to give you a score out of one to 10. This is like gem or whatever. You're going to protect it and insure it. You're going to put it in a slab and you're going to get an insurance policy on it because it's worth thousands of dollars, if not tens of thousands of dollars. And then you're probably going to vault it. You're not going to want to have it under your bed, right? Or like in your closet, if it's that valuable. And all of those steps, authenticating, grading, insuring, vaulting, they're all basically value-added services that physical trading card collectors apply to their valuable items really to protect them and preserve them permanently. And so things like permanently and things like preservation, those are all kind of things that blockchain technology was designed to do, right? So that's where sort of our adoption of blockchain technology comes in, not because it's fashionable and we want to slap an NFT label on things. It's actually because in our off-chain marketplace, we have our collectors who are valuing off-chain collectibles at hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. And they're hitting price points and they're hitting a sense of valuation off-chain where the owners of them are starting to wonder, well, I want to give this to my kid, right? Or I want to protect this long-term. And that's where you enter the blockchain and our minting technology to basically let the collector choose what from their collection should go on chain, when it should go on chain, and to which chain it should go. So you're probably hearing in my explanation a lot of comparisons to physical trading cards. That's something I think that we won't ever lose. We think it's a unique perspective. We actually think that metaphor right, of authenticating, grading, ensuring vaulting, it's a really good metaphor to explain why the blockchain, when you're talking to a noob or a no-coiner or somebody who maybe has heard of the label, but doesn't understand why the technology has to exist. So I think all of that kind of wrapped up puts Quid as an Animoca Brands company in a really strong position to sort of be that front door to the mainstream. I mean, you could imagine if I parsed this argument down to some really sexy marketing, going to a card convention in New Jersey on a Saturday and talking about what we do would be actually understandable, right? And actually appealing to someone who spent 30 years collecting cardboard. I want to get a little bit into some of the metrics you guys got going on. We hear you're generating a listing conversion rate of 48%, over six transactions per second. Those sound like pretty good stats. Just want to get a sense of how you all think about metrics, what kind of 
metrics and stats you're aiming for in the future? I think we're ending maybe one of the first or second chapters of NFTs where what is um, attention grabbing is the individual NFT selling for tens of millions of dollars, right? I think that's great. Like the Beeple auction, all those things are proof points and bits of evidence that are actually necessary to sort of send messages from the world of crypto and into the mainstream to actually get their attention, right? Um, they're little marketing messages that kind of go over the sort of fence, so to speak. But ultimately, is every new person that comes into NFT is going to wind up with a $69 million NFT? Probably not, right? But those metrics, those might call them vanity metrics, are usually all around primary market drops. And it's usually around things like sales velocity, you know, how quickly you sold out in five minutes. And it's usually around that aggregate revenue that's generated from there. Or in the case of it focusing on the aftermarket, it's usually one singular sale. We are like, oh, this, you know, someone bought this from somebody else for millions of dollars. And you guys probably saw the sale for CryptoPunks last week. Yeah. You see that? It was actually like a flash loan. And the guy... <laughs> The guy bought it from himself. Hopefully that becomes a cautionary tale for the industry. And as an industry, we shift to a different set of, of metrics. Because again, like the individual one-off sale, I think people can start to see through that, especially if you've got instances of it being gamed or the really sexy, fast-selling sellout. I think that's also going to shift. And where we want to focus is really on aftermarket liquidity for as many buyers and sellers as possible, right? So you talked about the listing to sale conversion rate. <clears throat> you had talked about, I think, the transactions per second. What's really important for us is if a buyer wants to buy, he or she can find an owner and compel that owner to list something at a reasonable price to buy from them. Or if an owner wants to sell and liquidate, he or she can find a buyer and make that sale. So I would call it sort of generalized liquidity that is equally distributed amongst your entire collector base of buyers and sellers, not just five whales or not just something that produces a single one-off aftermarket sale that generates millions of dollars because that can exist in isolation, but not actually be scaled down to the rest of your buyer and seller user base. So ultimately what really matters to us is liquidity. And we're just as concerned about liquidity for inventory that might cost 10 cents or 50 cents or $1 as we are liquidity for the high-end items that are like one of ones that should go for, you know, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. Basically a sustainable ecosystem. hundred percent. Right. And our approach is we're going to go through different boom and bust cycles, but this is the technology. And I think also this is a consumer behavior, which is really important, not just the technology, but the consumer behavior that's sort of here to stay, we can all envision a world of like getting together at these social events in person for NFT NYC this week and sort of pulling out your phone and showing off the cool thing you own. That's already happening. That's going to happen a ton this week. And I think that'll go mainstream over the coming years. But I would say in the world where we're not necessarily chasing the massive single transaction for millions of dollars, and in a world where we have a very long time horizon, what we can focus on are making product investments so that liquidity can be distributed across the big guys, but also the small guys as well. Because that really is part of that economic utility argument is, hey, it's great if you, if you got into one of these NFT projects early, and it's great if there's an ever-increasing floor price. 
but the floor price isn't really value, right? The floor price is sort of a coordination of sellers who are incentivized to drive up that price. That's not actual liquidity, right? Actual liquidity is like bid ask spreads. And it's basically if somebody on either end of a transaction wants to do something, they can do it and get a good outcome instantly. And I think that's a problem solved at scale only if you invest in technology and only if you build basically a next generation version of eBay that can deal with all this digital inventory. So essentially our motto is one NFT sale. And I'm stealing this from someone who's far smarter than me, but our motto is basically if one NFT, you know, what's not cool is one NFT that sells for a million dollars. What's cool is a million NFTs selling for $1. In that latter case, you obviously get a large audience and you're getting liquidity for that large audience of, of buyers and sellers. One of the things too that comes to mind for me is as we think of the evolution of NFTs, we talk a lot about going from pure collectibles with no utility to these utility-backed projects then and then something else beyond that. But I don't think we've even come close to tapping into the value that exists in the core collectibles market. Collectibles built around nostalgia, around passion for things that are really meaningful to people. I think a lot of folks talk about it like we moved on from that or something. It's just the beginning, man. We just barely scratched the surface. It's so freaking early in this space. And there isn't a week that goes by where I'm like, oh, I didn't realize that actually this is a second or third order consequence or implication of what NFTs have ushered in. Basically, there are multiple parts of, let's say, the collectibles value chain that are massively disrupted and actually do business differently as a result of NFTs, right? So one thing with NFTs that everyone talks about is in its application to the collectibles market, it solves a problem that's been essentially plaguing licensors and licensees for the longest time, which is their lack of participation in the aftermarket, right? Let's take traditional baseball cards, right? Major League Baseball and Tops never participated in a big aftermarket sale on eBay, right? What did they do in response of a hot product on eBay? Well, they made new content and sold that new content to try to capitalize. Well, what does that do? That floods the market with more supply. Well, what does that do? that sends asset prices in a depreciating fashion. With the introduction of NFTs and the ability to do this all in code, you've now got a situation where licensors and licensees expect to participate in aftermarket sales, right? And no one's wondering, did I get my cut? Exactly, because it's all programmatic and automated. And we're doing deals where it's like, what's your wallet address? Because we're going to send money in there into perpetuity. And just like, make sure someone watches it, right? Because like in five or seven years, like there could be a huge transfer in there right? But I thought, okay, that's cool. It's like an additional revenue stream. It, it actually changes how you even approach supply in general. If I'm a licensor, like a large media company or like a sports league or a player's association, I think less optimizing for retail sales of my NFTs, I'm more optimizing for the preservation and steady growth of my NFT assets. That's a really different concept. It's not about how many cards can I sell this season. It's actually what's the overall asset price of my branded NFTs over the long term. So their role is less of a decision maker on how widgets get shipped. Their role is more of like an investment manager who's deciding what portfolio of supply should exist and how those should appreciate in value over five or 10 years. So again, not to get too theoretical with you guys, but we're so, so, so early that 
there really isn't a week where I don't hit some kind of traditional way of doing business and collectibles and say, oh, well, that's now entirely upended because of this technical innovation. One of the things that we've seen across the board is that community and collaboration and partnerships are central to the most successful projects in the space. And we wanted to know how important are partnerships to Quid and what you're doing? I'd say very important. And I would say that we are also very much in early days around partnerships. I think largely, let's just zoom way out. We obviously specialize in officially licensed content. Anything that has been issued and is in circulation on Quid is officially licensed that was born out of a legal agreement that we had with these media companies where we've earned the trust to work with really their most valuable asset, which is their IP and their brands. So everything we've done has been historically 100% officially licensed. Why do we do that? Well, one path to the mainstream is just working with intellectual property people love. Now, there are other paths. Look at punks or bored apes. Those are crypto brands that are originated from crypto. And that's sort of crypto's Mickey Mouse now, is, is what I would argue. Like, I think sort of apes has sort of become like, like the Disney portfolio of characters for crypto world. But I think in this space, the use of well-known popular IP has always been sort of a ticket to the mainstream because using those characters or those brands is an emotional sort of hijack of the senses for that prospective buyer. And it sort of like instantly infuses that JPEG or that PNG with a built-in audience and with some built-in. That's one partnership. Are we going to get a, a taste of what's happening there? We love to get some secrets on the show. Anything you can talk about on that roadmap? Um, no. <laughs> no, no, I mean... <laughs> yeah. All right. No, well, I, guys, I we're going to continue this show so after a uh, shot of tequila yeah. later on tonight. <laughs> there you go. And then we'll press play again. It was a significant no, I mean, pause. So yeah. Well, I would hate to be coy and, and like give you a little sort of tea leaves for your listeners to attempt to dissect and, and figure out kind of what's tea next. Leaves. But I would say Look that up tea leaves guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this um, is a yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, it's funny. We've actually dropped clues elsewhere when we've done AMAs with All our right, They're with working our, on our something community. with Lipton guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Huge drop coming up. Tetley, Tetley tea. Time out for um, Tetley tea. There's certainly a lot happening in the works there. And I think one of the interesting perspectives that we have is we've been talking to media companies and sports leagues about digital collectibles for half a decade, right? And we were the only one talking about it five years ago. Now it's a very crowded space and everybody wants to get in. And it's wonderful to see a lot of these companies that formerly weren't receptive to it, now very receptive to it. And I think with each week that goes by, they're getting less shaky and more confident in it. Because again, it's not easy, right? An NFT deal basically implies perpetual ownership of the media, the metadata, and the underlying token, which itself is like an ownership record, right? And it is difficult for these companies whose brands are their most important asset to all of a sudden say, well, we're going to create something that can live into perpetuity. But we're really getting there. And, and I think it's been wonderful to see a very rapid evolution and adoption of this new technology. But what I was going to say is, I don't think we really scratched the surface on, on the types of partnerships. Obviously, working upstream and working with licensors to create officially licensed product, that's very, very compelling. But no one's really talking about kind of downstream and building a distribution network of NFTs or building a network of interoperable apps so that from day one of the issuance of an NFT, you already know the list of compatible apps, games, and metaverses where you can bring that, right? We obviously operate in a space where a lot of NFTs are dropped for a game that's yet to be built. 
right? But what if via partnerships, you could effectively build a real metaverse that from day one had these NFTs interoperable between and amongst them. Now, I have nothing to announce, but we've been a huge, been hugely fortunate to be part of the Animoca Brands family because there are other subsidiaries within Animoca Brands that have wonderful, not just projects, but businesses and products and communities. One would be the Sandbox, for instance, right? It's not too far of a leap to make to imagine us selling and issuing digital collectibles on quid that can be minted and fully interoperable and used in the sandbox once it's on chain, right? So I think it's those sort of downstream distribution network, basically cobbling together day one roster of interoperable apps, games, and metaverses that I think is super, super compelling because that basically boosts the utility of the NFT immensely. I think the cool part is we are in a unique position with Animoca Brands to not just promise that, but to actually deliver against that before anybody else. Yeah, man. Totally see that. Those, yeah, everything they're doing, so many great companies under that umbrella and the partnerships. Yeah. I mean, our, it makes our mind explode how many opportunities there are for you. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, even if it takes Facebook making a big announcement for people to get excited about metaverses, it's all good in my mind because ultimately every... What's Facebook again? <laughs> all I know is that announcement drops and every metaverse token, you know, jumps up in value 50 to 100%. And I've been telling folks, I feel like 2022 is the year of the metaverse where all this stuff that's been conversation, what is a metaverse? How do these work? We're all going to find that out next year. I had to watch Ready Player One because we've been talking about it about every other episode. Have you seen it, Michael? Have you seen the movie? I have. I okay. have. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know that that will necessarily happen in 2022. I think that's always going to be that aspirational metaverse concept that's out there. But what I'm actually finding interesting is the notion of a metaverse that maybe lives in your head more than it lives in a virtual Roblox style environment, right? It's easy to do Ready Player One, sort of conceive of like strapping down a VR headset and all of a sudden you're in that world, that virtual world. And you, it's easy to extrapolate and say, well, obviously having like a rare pair of sneakers in that would be pretty cool and might replicate how cool it is to have a pair of rare Nikes and walk through the hall of your middle school, right? It's easy to sort of see that. But what I think is really interesting is, you know, like take, you know, Board API Club. I mean, some might argue that's community. It's it's kind of a metaverse, but the metaverse plays out in someone's head as well as like places like Discord or more broadly on the internet. So what I'm uncertain of that I want to see play out is I don't know that metaverse is a place. I think a metaverse may be more a state of mind as cheesy as that sounds. I agree though. We'll see it play out and like obviously huge advances in 2022, but I think aspirationally, it's probably a decade really to get to ready player one. I'll make one more comment there. There's a whole separate board ape yacht club track for this week of NFT events in New York. And I got to imagine once these guys hang out in real life, there's going to be more activity in the metaverse. And I think that intersection of in rotation of IRL and metaverse over and over again is going to create some really interesting 
perspective on what is a metaverse to your point where it may just be that other person at Starbucks that you realize is also a member of Board API Club and you cheers to each other across the cafe. Yeah, I agree. It's kind of a country club without a physical location, right? That can live anywhere and be fully decentralized. It's also the intersection of the real world and the virtual world and augmented world, right? It's not, I don't think it's fully defined yet. We've been going deep and I think we could talk all day, man, about everything that Quid is about and everything that it can be. We even talked before the show about circling back and talking more um, with a completely separate episode around the sports world and everything that's happening there with trading cards and the evolution. But we wanted to take a step back and ask you your perspective on some other questions to get your personal view on some things. It's a section that we call Edge Quick Hitters, and it's kind of a fun, quick way to get to know you a little better. It's 10 questions, and we look for single word or few word responses, but we always like to give you the bandwidth to uh, expand if you get the urge. You ready to dive in on these? All right, brother. Sounds good. Question number one, what is the first thing you remember ever purchasing in your life? Oh, it's probably a really terrible late 80s, early 90s cassette tape, like a vanilla ice. Oh, oh man. I think I had like Martika Toy Soldiers, guys. I'm sorry. I'm going to admit it. I had (laughs) MC Hammer. I had Paula Abdul. I had had both of those. Yeah. 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 I think somehow I got a hold of a Kenny G tape too. I don't know what happened. Well, I mean, (laughs) I think I had like, please hammer, don't hurt him. Yeah. Call me bad. Call me bad. That was one. Kenny G considered jazz or not? I don't know what that is, man. (laughs) I think I had a Bismarck cassette tape too, guys. I know. I think I just ruined your podcast. I know. We're going to do a whole podcast (laughs) on this particular subject, guys. All right. Question two. What is the first thing you remember ever selling in your life? Oh God. A Whitey Ford baseball card that I bought at a card convention in the Midwest for like seven bucks. I think I sold it for 50 bucks. And I kind of became hooked with the small little business of, of running a card collection. Nice oh, man. Nice one. Question three, what is the most recent thing you purchased? Probably a Bob's Burgers digital collectible on quid. Question number four, what is the most recent thing you sold? Also a Bob's Burgers digital collectible I know these are meant to be fast answers, but but Bob's Burgers, for your audience that doesn't know, is this really strange animated program that used to be on Fox. It's, I think, now on Hulu. It's sort of like if someone in, in Brooklyn kind of did The Simpsons in, like, 2016. It's fascinating. We have been fortunate to work with them over the years and produced a lot of totally irreverent, silly digital collectibles that, like, have the word fart in them, and they're just hilarious. And so... I'm trying to conquer that market on, on quid right now. We know you want to increase liquidity, but you don't have to do all the buying and selling yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Number five, what is your most prized possession? Oh, this is lame. My kids. You don't possess them. Yeah. That's bad. I guess you can't possess them, but my kids, I'll go with that. How many you got? Two. Two running around. All right. Awesome. Question number six, if you could buy anything in the world, digital, physical service and experience that's currently for sale, what would that be? What do you got your eye on? Oh, it's probably something old. I really like vintage things. I'm kind of a closet antiques roadshow fan. In a lot of ways, this has influenced our approach to quid. We love the sort of oxymoron vintage digital collectibles. So I can't name it specifically, but definitely something like 50 to 100 years old. I just love old stuff. I just went to an estate sale a couple of weekends ago for the first time in a while. And just remember how fun estate sales are. You know, you can find the coolest yeah. old stuff at those things. 
each one of those old things has a weird story to it. And you wonder like, why did this person buy it and what do they do with it? So, you know, it's a lot of what makes NFT special as well as the ability to track provenance and like bake culture into that object itself. I think old antiques also have that, that attribute. Question number seven, if you could pass on one of your personality traits to the next generation, what would that be? I guess the word is resilience, but it's the ability to not die. I don't mean in the sense of like a mortal life. I just mean in the sense of being able to take a bunch of licks and keep getting up. So I think resilience is key. Question number eight, if you could eliminate one of your personality traits from the next generation, what would that be? Somewhat of a lack of discipline. I can be somewhat unstructured at times. That's only increasing with all the different stimulus we have throughout the day. So I have a weakness that I have a like chase bright, shiny objects too often. So I think I would eliminate that and give them the gift of focus. I don't know. It seems like you got a pretty solid long-term methodical plan here, but I guess you could always be a little bit more analytical and methodical about things. You've got a pretty good balance, man. So question number nine, what'd you do just before joining us on the podcast? I unpacked groceries. I can only tell you the truth. That's and, all we asked. And yeah. he bought a Bob's burger and his team. <laughs> was it? And he sold it. With the word fart in there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly <laughs> Did you get anything from the grocery store you're like looking forward to? Or was it just like the staples, you know, eggs and St- stuff? Staples. I was remarking to myself that the bags looked as if it was packed like a prop handler. It was like a French baguette and like, <laughs> you know, celery stalk shooting out. Nice. So it was like basically every bag of groceries you see in a movie, right? <laughs> which is not real. Question 10. What are you going to do next after the podcast? Attend this evening's event at NFT NYC. I hope to see you guys there. Absolutely. Right. Awesome. awesome. Thanks for indulging us, man. Appreciate it. That is Edge Quick Hitters. There you go. And next up on the agenda here is Hot Topics. And let's hit that hard here. We got AC Milan will be the first club to launch NFTs with Chili's with a Z rewarding ACM holders. Okay. On their website, they've announced this, that Rassoneri will be the first football club to launch an NFT campaign on the fan engagement and rewards app, socios.com, partner of the Rossoneri since January 2021. The launch will take place on Sunday, 31st of October, yesterday, podcast will be released later, when 100 limited edition NFTs will be minted to commemorate the biggest AC Milan moment from their game with AS Roma. The NFT will be subsequently dropped to ACM fan token holders. All right, cool stuff. Getting in there with sports. All right, so one of the cool things I saw about this thing is that you have to have a certain number of tokens in your wallet to be eligible for the NFT. And then also you have to like make a prediction about the outcome of the game, mm. right? And then only then are you eligible. There's this gaming aspect of this going right. in there. I like, right? like that. Yeah, there's something really cool, like DraftKings-esque right, going on here <laughs> yeah. with this thing. So I just like this use case. I think it's fun. Fun is so important, right, to the space right now. We got to keep things fun and interesting. And this is one of those ones where I'm like, oh, yeah, this is like kicking down the door of the intersection of fantasy and NFTs and all this fun stuff we're doing with gaming. Yeah. I think entirely new verticals of products will be created that very much of interest for the DFS players, whether it's FanDuel or DraftKings, or even or even the traditional sports betting players like, like a Penn or like an MGM. I think they've all very much seen what Dapper's done with Top Shot. And it presents not only a new model, but an entirely new vertical, right? Like in this space, you're not necessarily having to play the role of a GM and feel the lineup and, you know, do a draft. And 
sort of uh, populate various positions to then earn points and rank and win money. When it's an NFT and it has like an asset-like ability to it, and when it's maybe determined or connected to the sports performance on the pitch or on the field, I, I think there's a, I think basically it'll be the invention of a new vertical that isn't quite DFS, but isn't quite NFTs, but kind of marries the best of both worlds into one experience. That's really cool to hear that Socios is, is doing that. I, I think you're probably, without sharing too much, you're going to see a lot of innovation in that space in the next six months. Yeah, yeah man. Right something on. with uh, T as well. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was interesting. You said it several times that actually, you know, we haven't heard that particular phrase before. It's very relevant, the cardboard or code, right? And I think one of the interesting things, of course, that is sort of obvious, but it's not, is like, whoa, the code. I mean, the code, there's just so much you can do in engagement levels, right? I mean, we haven't even scratched the surface into what kind of programmatic things you could do. You can't own a cardboard trading card and that gets you special access to something and it's automated, right? The list is endless. Let me just give you one without maybe sharing too much proprietary secret information, but there are limitations on the type of physical inventory that can transact on eBay. Basically, it's like if the item's less than 50 bucks in value, you're really not going to go through the pain of listing it, nor are you going to go through the pain of, I mean, think about it, like picking, packing, shipping, receiving, confirming receipt, right? Like all those things are a headache and it functions as a tax on the transaction that effectively limits what inventory can be transacted. So you have these physical markets around pieces of cardboard that exist simply because of the physical nature of the widget in the middle. In the digital world, that doesn't have to exist. I mean, there's zero shipping. It's instant, right? There's an ability to trade these things you know, and buy and sell them 24-7. There are innovative sales formats that haven't even existed. There's fractional ownership. There's, I'm sure, going to be a suite of financial products that are offered up to NFT holders to sell off a portion of the item and get some liquidity. There's so many things that are yet to be invented that simply cannot work on top of cardboard that I think we're, we're like very close to a situation where it's like clear that dealing with code is 10x or 100x cooler, more fun, more efficient, faster, whatever, than a static piece of, of cardboard. And don't get me wrong, I love cardboard. I've got a baseball card collection I love and still check in on and still trade every once in a while. I just think it's inevitable and there's this sort of unstoppable trend towards digitizing major parts of our lives, that it's unthinkable that this collectibles category, inclusive of low-end trading cards or high-end, isn't also going to go in that same direction. I look at it not as like the liberal arts guy, but kind of more of this sort of structured thinker. And it's like, of course, somebody's going to build a product or experience that is just so much cooler that has not just the digital natives that prefer things that way, but actually gets those in-betweeners, right? Somebody who's invested time and energy into, in this case, like their cassette tape collection and someone comes along with a CD and they have to upgrade formats because it's just so much better. So I think we're really on the eve of all that happening. What else we got going on, Ethan? Let's see. This is very obscure Facebook. 
again, you guys mentioned that earlier. I'm not familiar with it, but is rebranding to Meta. Okay, I guess that is a story that's been in the news. You know, it's funny. I forget the exact scenario, but there's some sort of release video around this, I guess, like Mark Zuckerberg doing like an explanation. Or I have no idea. What he did it. a post on it. And my wife was like, you know, oh, did you hear about that? And it's like, I heard about it. And this video came up on my feed when I searched for it. And I said, oh, let's watch the video. She's like, Let's not. I already saw it. Like, I don't <laughs> want to see it. I well, so I, I don't really have I any think, idea what's going on. But I haven't used Facebook in seven or eight years. I don't personally use Instagram. Any of my connections to the broader Facebook universe, it's a necessity for running elements of our business. I do use some WhatsApp, but it's far, it's far more as a productivity tool than it is where I hang out and deal with people. And so I think my reaction to it, it was a strange one, which is like, well, I still don't care because I haven't, I've sort of largely viewed them at least irrelevant in my life. And I don't know if I'm part of a leading trend of people that have deleted their Facebook account or sort of walked away from it. Yeah. Is this a desperate pivot or is this a long-term vision that's been in the making? That's the question. It's probably both. I I don't think it's a desperate pivot. I think it's part rebrand because things really couldn't get worse from a PR standpoint, but I think it's also really ruthlessly commercial in the sense that they see where the world is going and they need to start putting the building blocks in place to dominate that future world. Part of the messaging, I can feel, Jeff, you have something to say here, but part of the messaging from them has been, this is going to be more open. It's going to be more about collaboration with other people being able to build on top of what they're doing, which is not. Probably not. And unless they came out and said, we're going to change our business model, I think this will just be a bright, shinier 3D VR way to experience the same Facebook ecosystem and economy. I mean, I'm a believer that everything goes down to business model. Even these disruptive technology changes, they're largely business model changes that render some incumbent all of a sudden making money the wrong way. And the new entrant actually comes in and makes money the right way. So I think Facebook as a whole takes in your data and the content you contribute, and they use that to make you the product and sell you to advertisers. And if everyone one day just stopped using Instagram or Facebook, they don't have a business. And so there's a whole ton of asymmetries there where it's the community that does the work, but the community actually gets very little of the benefit. And if you believe everything about these reports from Instagram and such, they actually get a negative benefit or a cost, which they feel bad about themselves. So I think really what matters is there'd be no change if Meta is just a new application layer on top of the existing business model. What matters instead is this whole concept of Web3, which is quickly coming a, becoming a reality, which is the community actually owns the thing, right? And we finally get right the reciprocity of the value in coming back and value out for the community. I mean, look at like friends with benefits. You can talk about Bored Ape, right? Like in effect, owning the NFT or owning the token makes you a member of the community. And that relationship is one of a co-owner of many co-owners as opposed to a relationship that's like, I'm just here to give content and view ads. I'm a little skeptical on it, as you might hear in my analysis, because I think what matters is probably the business model more than some new application layer on top of the old business model. I mean, what's interesting about the Facebook and Google model over the past many years that they've been around is people have this value locked inside of what they do that they don't always realize is valuable. Right. And then some company comes in and say, hey, we realize there's value. Give it to us for free. Sign the terms of service. We'll generate value around it. 
in essence, that's okay if they know how to generate value out of it and the users don't. But then there's that other aspect of it, which I think you alluded to, which is they're generating value by hijacking people's dopamine system and making them feel bad about themselves at the same time. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, let's fast forward 10 years from now, right? Like there's going to be a generation that think it was crazy to post interesting creative content to benefit some other platform and their advertisers. Like that idea that we did that for a decade or more is going to feel obscene. It's a paradigm shift to use an overly cliched term, but I think you'll see the same thing, let's say, in video games. I really believe this is happening sooner than we think. I think it's five years away where people will say, I can't believe I played video games and didn't make money. Like, full stop, right? So I'm a huge believer, as is Animoca, in in the play-to-earn movement. And I think that we are at the late stages of free-to-play. Free-to-play as an economic system is awful for players. It basically uses 2%. It takes these addictive mechanics to prey upon the 2% to subsidize the other 98%. And you don't actually own the thing, nor can you really make money from it. So I think free-to-play is ending in the gaming industry. And what you'll find is more things like Axie Infinity, where people will say, yeah, I got good at this game and I can make money in a much more direct way within the game itself. That's probably the one that's like sooner in where people will say, I can't believe 10 years ago, people spent all their time playing these video games and didn't make any money from it. A little more optimistic that Facebook can see the light and use their power and money and capability to do some good. You know? Got some so. Facebook stock? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to disclose any information right now, but no, I, if anybody does have the power to make it happen, I think they do. Will they? I don't know, but I'll be optimistic about it. Yeah. Sorry. All, All right. Good. Should we wrap it up? I think so. It's cool. been an amazing combo. Michael, we'll definitely have to have you back. We can go down so many different rabbit holes together and it would be a blast, but we'll save that for another time. So for now, please let our listeners know what's the best place to follow you and all the projects that you got going on best place is twitter so go find us at, at quid on twitter q u i d d uh, we didn't talk about it but there's also an associated token that we're working on so find it on the internet if you could and then if you want to get a sense of what quid is like to be a collector on and to buy and sell these digital collectibles you can easily find us in the App Store or Google Play. Just type in Q-U-I-D-D. So remember the two Ds. Or you can see a sliver of what we do if you go to market.onquid.com. And I would say, as a last little plug, now is a very good time to sort of get in early on Quid. Consider it like, because we haven't marketed in like two years, right? Like we've been heads down building. It's a really good time to get into Quid because there are a lot of what I would call hidden gems that you can buy at a relatively low cost basis off chain. And in the very near future, you'll be able to take certain items off chain, mint them as NFTs to your chain of choice, and let's say sell them on OpenSea. So we sort of represent like an undiscovered estate sale, maybe, that's full of these vintage digital collectibles that we think, if you follow the arc of history and the trends, will really only appreciate in value because no one has a time machine and it's impossible to make a digital collectible from 2016 or 2017. Like you can't do that today, but by the nature of us that we've been doing it, we actually sit on the, this, this inventory that is really like inimitable. And I think kind of represents the Honus Wagner's, of the digital collectibles and NFTs. You heard it here, guys. Crypto not, punks. Not, not financial advice, but a whole lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, stuff that existed. 
Yeah. But I mean, think of punks, right? Punks went dormant for three years and then was rediscovered. I'm skipping the party. I'm just going heads down into quid tonight. That's <laughs> it, fellas. <laughs> Amazing. Hey, another cool thing though, I guess we have a really cool giveaway, I think, oh, together yeah. for our, our listeners as well. Michael saying he's got 40 number one digital collectibles on quid. And we're saying that one lucky winner that submits their quid username can choose one number one item from his collection and he'll gift it to them to help him get started. But he said he he does (laughs) love his collection. I retain the right to veto your first choice. I think someone's going to swoop in and go for the one I bought for a couple thousand dollars. And then they're going to like, just look at that and snatch it from me. So I retain the right to veto that first choice, but I will not veto the second choice. I would say, as you can imagine, the world of collecting, that individual serial number, that stamp really is very important to its value. And the number one items that we have on Quid are really rare, really precious, really sought after. And so I sit on 40 of them. One of those will go to a lucky listener. But yes, I do retain veto power because I love my collection and it's going to break my heart to give one of these items to one of your listeners. It's a very thoughtful gesture and we'll hopefully find someone that really appreciates what a generous offer that you're giving us. So thanks so much. Absolutely. Keep listening out on our socials, everybody, and you'll get all the details of that giveaway. Well, fellas, I think we have reached the outer limit at the edge of NFTs for today. So thanks for exploring with us. We've got space for more adventures on this starship. So invite your friends and recruit some cool strangers that will make this journey all so much better. How? Go to iTunes right now, rate us and say something awesome. Then go to edgeofnft.com to dive further down the rabbit hole. And remember, we always invite you to co-create and build with us at Edge of NFT. We are unlocking a whole new way to connect and collaborate with us through our own NFT drop, Living Tree NFTs. Through this project, we'll be planting tens of thousands of real trees. This collection is not only beautiful generative art, but will also be the foundation of everything we do with Edge of NFT in our community for years to come. On top of that, Living Tree holders like you will co-create and participate in our podcast and access exclusive events and killer contests. You'll be frontline for other NFT drops, as well as a long, bright future of branching opportunities to come. Get on the whitelist by dropping us a line at contact at edgeofnft.com or tweet at us at edgeofnft and we'll share with you the steps required to get in the mix. Lastly, be sure to tune in next time for more great NFT content. Thanks again for sharing this time with us today. The views and opinions expressed on the Edge of NFT podcast reflect solely those views and opinions of the show creators and its guests. We're learning as we go just like you. Please make sure to do your own research. Our podcast is not financial advice. There are multiple strategies and not all strategies fit all people. We understand that you are using any and all information available on or through this podcast at your own risk.